Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 50, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. This is our, um, well, our holiday podcast. It's like right on the nose, almost. Uh, So, um, Merry Christmas. What does Merry Christmas mean? It means be deeply joyful about what's happening here, and of course we are. This is all about our pursuit of Jesus, and this is really where where things begin, where the uh, cross-border invasion from the kingdom of God into the kingdom of man begins. And all great epic adventure stories have something in some way reflect or mirror the greatest adventure story ever. Um, I think about uh, one of my favorite book series and film series is Lord of the Rings, and so much of that captures the essence of light penetrating darkness and goodness grabbing a foothold in the midst of evil. All of that, in the end, is about Jesus. Well, I'm Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, who, which was released earlier this year, and Spiritual Grit released last year, and The Jesus-Centered Life, um, the sort of birth mother of this podcast, and I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. We have a whole host of Jesus-Centered resources, including The Jesus-Centered Bible, they're perfect for starting a new path in a new year. So check those out on PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, you can find links for them uh, if you look for Season 4, Episode 50. By the way, I just, I've, I've been telling you this for a few weeks now, I just finished the daily devotional uh, called the Jesus Center Daily that has been a, a huge Himalayan mountain in my life for more than a year now. So much poured into this daily devotional, and um, I'm excited for the process to start now, for the editorial process to start as it moves toward being published in August of next year. So we'll tell you more about that as uh, as we get closer to the date and tell you about all of the ways that you can get maybe a teaser of that daily devotional uh, in the months to come. So today is the 16th episode in a series we're calling The Beeline Practices. This one, again, has a little Advent-ish sort of twist to it, but The Beeline Practices are, if you're just listening for the first time, it's a a phrase, uh, the beeline to Jesus is a phrase that C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, used to always keep his, his eyesight focused on Jesus, no matter what he was doing, no matter what uh, sermon or message he was giving, wherever he started from, he wanted to end up in Jesus. And I expanded that whole beeline to Jesus thing into a menu of practices that help us to focus on Jesus in every aspect of our life in natural, normal, organic ways. So it's really a menu of possibilities, not a to-do list. It's just something on this list of, of beeline practices might really appeal to you, might really uh, draw you like a magnet. So today is the 16th, um, I think, of 19 episodes we're going to do on the beeline practices. And in this episode, we're going to explore the beeline practice of fearlessly engaging. So I mentioned I'm using this Advent season uh, sort of as a lens. It's a, it's a hyper-relational season, and this 
beeline practice of fearlessly engaging is really uh, uh, it, it's really applicable during this time of when we're relating to a lot of people. Some people we'd rather not be relating to, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, the holidays draws together uh, families and friends in a way that no other uh, season of our year does. So we're plunged into lots of conversations and relationships that maybe are sporadic throughout the year. So uh, I, another way of, of describing what, what it means to fearlessly engage others uh, might be to call it the art of paying ridiculous attention to others. So the name of the podcast is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. But as we do that and grow, grow, grow nearer and nearer to his heart, one of the things we experience that's transformed in us is we start to pay better attention to the other people in our lives. So just, just today, I got a note and a gift from a good friend of mine, um, uh, by surprise, who uh, had written me this uh, powerful note about, um, uh, about wanting to give a gift to me at Christmas. And uh, in addition to this extraordinary gift that he gave me, I think the greatest gift he gave me was he, he, he spent two or three paragraphs describing from his perspective what he thinks my year has been like and the challenges that I've faced. And it's an extraordinary thing to get a note from someone um, who's paying attention to who you are and, and what your life is like, and then listen to them describe what they've seen in you. It was really powerful. And the reason it was powerful is because I knew that my friend was paying close attention to me. And I, uh, that alone is a tremendous gift in a culture where hardly anyone pays attention to anyone anymore. To have somebody pay peculiar attention and point out things that I thought no one else really knew about my uh, internal challenges and the, the, uh, the, the things that gave me joy this year, the things that made me afraid, he named all those things. And and he was trying to say, uh, I, I respect and honor you for the journey that you've been on this year. And he proved that he was paying attention by listing things that I thought no one else would have noticed, but he did. So this was a tremendous gift to me. And even the, the physical thing that he gave me was extraordinary. But uh, what will last forever for me, and maybe every time I look at that little little gift he gave me, I will remember the gift of paying ridiculous attention to me that he gave. So the rhythm behind this is simply pay attention, and then we give, out of the well of our observation, we give something to the other. So it's, a, it's, it's not really a discipline, it's more like a, a way of breathing in your life, where you get used to paying closer and more ridiculous attention to the people in your life, and then as you do that, offering something out of what you observe. It really does reflect what my friend did for me today. He paid close attention to the things that I love, the things that, that, that challenge and, and scare me, and out of that he gave me a, a gift, a, literally a physical gift, that he thought my heart would really respond to, and he was right. Now those are powerful, life-changing moments when that happens. Again, because most people, and most of the time, don't really experience being paid attention to at what I might call a spiritual level. Uh, I mean, we don't pay attention to others in tandem with the Spirit of Jesus in our life, meaning as you're, as you're 
relating to others, you're not um, aware and focused and curious about what Jesus wants to unearth in that person as you're talking to them. Uh, we, we just don't do this very often where we listen and pay attention to others in a spirit of partnership with Jesus as we're relating to them. So we, in this, in this, what I'm calling listening in, at a spiritual level to others, it means that we're listening and interacting in a, and I guess you could call it an intentional, creative way. Uh, the intentionality is that we're digging below the surface with that person, and the creative way is that we're finding pathways through the dense underbrush of their story to get closer and closer to the heart of their story. Most people, um, um, if, you, if you could uh, paint this picture in your mind, most people's uh, interior narrative um, looks like um, a hiking trail that you're on, and all of a sudden it comes to a stop in a wall of brambles, and you don't see where the path goes, and you have to figure out a way through or around the brambles. That's what most people are like. They they have defenses set up within the narrative of their story, and it's hard to get past them. And it often looks like dead end in our conversation with people. And this creative, uh, Jesus-dependent way of engaging them is it's simply a way of finding a way uh, finding our way through or around those barriers to get to a, the, the place of vulnerability in that person's life and then give them a good gift in that place. That's essentially what this is like. So we pay attention, we're in consultation with the Spirit of Jesus in us, and then we're giving out of that, like the way that maybe during this Christmas season you have thought about the important people in your life and you wanted to surprise them with a gift, and in order to do that, you have to pay attention to their nuances, the subtleties of their life and their heart, and then we give a good gift out of that place to them. That's what this is like. So during the holidays, we have lots and lots of opportunities to offer something that really goes past the surface of people, that gets past that wall of brambles in their life. So I remember um, a, a past holiday when I was uh, uh, on a kind of a, f- a family retreat, and I was talking to uh, my nephew, who's now... Um, on his way to becoming uh, uh, a pharmacist, and he's he got married young, and um, his wife has some health challenges, and they were waiting to have children, but lo and behold, she she got pregnant, <laughs> and so while he's still in medical school, um, they're going to have a baby, and she's a teacher, she's going to have to take obviously some time off. And they're joyous about this gift of a baby, but it also is really stressful because they they were trying to uh, have this season of their life happen later when um, he wasn't in medical school and actually had a paying job and all of this. So um, I was just sitting talking to him, and the conversation started out um, the, the way most do on a surface level where you find out what's going on in the person's life, uh, the joys and challenges of their life, and what, how they're spending their time. But then I just started to probe by asking um, more, more and deeper questions about his story. And I, I asked him questions about what he intended to do at the end of his uh, education, what path was he going to take. And when he told me what he, what he was thinking about, I asked him uh, why questions. Why, why that path instead of another path? Um, 
And I just kept kind of digging below the surface, taking whatever it is that he offered me in this conversation and figuring out what kind of question I could ask him um, now to go just a little bit deeper into his story. And I remember thinking at the time, and you probably have feel this sometimes when you have a really good conversation with someone, when you walk away from that conversation, you think, I think something important happened there. This is one of those conversations for me that I don't often have because I'm not often around my extended family. Uh, that's why this holiday season presents us opportunities we normally wouldn't have. And sitting there, we could have just bantered for a while and, and talked about nothing or just talked about on a surface level what was going on in our lives. But what would happen if we redeemed that time? Um, what would happen if we treated that time as a precious gift and that the person across from us is also a precious gift that's waiting to be unwrapped and that a part of our mission is to find a way to get past the, the brambles in their path and find our way to the, the, uh, the core of who they are and get to something real and authentic. Well, it doesn't happen with a snap of the fingers. You have to walk and sometimes pull, pull aside the branches that are blocking your way and, and take some risks, um, take some calculated risks about where this might go. And that's what happened with that conversation with my nephew. He ended up sharing his heart, both the, the deeper fears that he faced, that he's a little bit afraid to speak out loud because uh, I know that he was feeling like, I'm going to have to have strength for this journey now, and i got to keep a stiff upper lip, and I want to be positive about this. But we got to this place where he could share really uh, some of his doubts and worries and anxieties, and e even about um, his own path forward, and what would that look like? What, what uh, remaining sacrifices would his wife have to make as he completed out his education and the choices they were making about where to live and so forth. So um, in that context, I tried to reflect back to him what I saw in him, all of the, the ways that I experienced his strength and his perseverance and his humility, and I speak them out into his story. I tell him what I see as he's revealing and showing me more of his core. I tell him what I'm seeing. And I, it's almost a, a mindset that you take on that says, I am going to um, find the treasure in this person, and when I find it, I'm going to describe it and bless him with the description. So that was one of those conversations that when I left, I felt like, you know, something happened there. Now, that's an example of fearlessly engaging someone to give them a gift of blessing that speaks to something at their core. This is what my friend did for me today. There's also another kind of fearless engagement that takes risks um, in places of tension. So at Thanksgiving, um, we went to my wife's extended family, and um, after dinner, uh, when we were just sitting around chatting, someone brought up uh, uh, the sort of the in a tertiary way uh, the political situation right now. In fact, now that I think back on it, that someone might have been me. <laughs> I was talking to, uh, to my brother-in-law about something, and he's in the uh, banking and finance world, and I mentioned something about current political po policy and how that's impacting his job. And other people around the table heard that, but especially my wife heard that. And as my brother-in-law talked, she kind of entered into that discussion, 
And all of a sudden, that discussion swung toward the thing you're not supposed to talk about at the table at Thanksgiving, which is politics, because it's so divisive right now. And that conversation quickly became, well, let's say tense. <laughs> um, not so much because there was such a deep political divide, but because the, there were many different, very strong perspectives um, there in that room, and they got accessed all of a sudden. So much so that slowly people started to leave the big table and go to another room, <laughs> just imperceptibly, oh, I think I'm going to take these dishes to the kitchen now. And in the end, only three or four people were left at the room, including my wife. And a number of times in this conversation, as it was getting more tense and more heated and more awkward, um, I, would, I nudged her under the table like, you know, it might be a good time to just sort of de-escalate all of this. But she seemed determined <laughs> to keep going. And so finally, I realized, ah, I don't think I can sit here and watch this happen because I think my wife is going to end up in pain because of this, and there's nothing I can do. She, she, she's determined to last it out, so I don't think I want to watch it happen, so I went into the other room. Well, in about 15 minutes, you know, pretty much everyone else who had been at that table was like, oh, I'm glad I got out of there. But in about 15 or 20 minutes, she came, uh, came out of the room with a, with a kind of a smile on her face, and I thought, okay, uh, that really surprises me. And basically what had happened is um, she had decided to fearlessly engage about real things around this political divide, and she has very strong feelings that are well-reasoned and well-grounded, and she, instead of what she would normally have done at a family gathering where she sort of shrinks back and cuts her losses, she decided to do the opposite, to really take a stand for her perspective. And in doing so, I don't think she necessarily convinced someone to change their mind, but I think she felt very um, she felt very fulfilled in the courage it took to stand and make and and uh, kind of make the case that she was trying to make. And she felt good that she had had the courage to do that uh, coming out of that. And one result of that fearless engagement is that, one of the people around that table who had been pushing the hardest against her um, felt convicted, um, actually, by what she had said. Uh, in, in some respects, what my wife was sharing is about our, uh, her friendship and uh, service to a Syrian refugee family that lives in our town, and she has befriended them for about a year and a half and is helping them with their business and helping them just navigate life and because they arrived with nothing and none of them spoke English and they'd come out of a horrific trauma. So she's come alongside to simply love them and serve them however she can. And we are often with this family. We just had them over after Thanksgiving to our home for the first time. And she was sharing out of this uh, uh, pointed experience in serving a Muslim Syrian refugee family um, and how that has changed our lives and how much we've learned about their story and how much we love these people. And I think that her, um, her the case that she was trying to make in this conversation, along with our own uh, per very deep personal experience um, in this area, was convicting to one of the people at that table. And that person ended up um, coming, looping back to my wife and essentially apologizing for the way that he had been, and offering to help 
and he was a help. Uh, something he suggested that we could do with this family has made a big impact and led to something that this uh, kind of a breakthrough for this family. So looking back on that conversation, if my wife had chosen to do what most of us do in these situations and stay on the sidelines instead of entering in and taking the risk that that, that meant, um, no good fruit would have resulted from that conversation, and instead a breakthrough happened. Well, these kinds of conversations, these ways of engaging people take courage. There's no doubt about it. So um, the way we do this, the way we fearlessly engage um, and um, uh, take advantage of the many new engagements we have around the holiday season, the way we do this is simply by asking more and better questions and then offering something out of what we discover. This is also the simple pattern of the way Jesus interacted with people. So Jesus, we know, asked a lot of demanding questions, questions that made other people wrestle with the truth and explore what they believe and see life and maybe see themselves differently than they have before. Um, in, in the Gospels alone, he, uh, he asked 287 questions. Question asking was one of Jesus's uh, breathing mechanisms. He, he did it habitually with people because question asking is a way to dig below the surface or pull apart the brambles to get uh, to the core of the story. So, um, and he asked questions that weren't so easy to answer. They, they clearly were digging questions like this one from Mark 2.9, which is easier to say? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, Jesus, this question was directed at the Pharisees who were upset that Jesus had just forgiven the paralyzed man's sins. And so here he's saying, well, which question is easier? To, uh, to which, which, which is easier to say to this man? Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk? And Wow, what a hard question for the Pharisees to answer. Um, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus uh, asked this question, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? So clearly, that question requires some digging. Here's another example from Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and first says to him, Good teacher, and then asks his question, Jesus' first response is, well, why do you call me good? There's that why question. This is Jesus' first attempt to get past the surface with this guy and try to tap into something that is motivating him to ask that question in the first place. What is motivating him to call Jesus good? This is how you get uh, past the brambles a little bit and onto the pathway to the core of their story. So why do you call me good? Jesus asked. So Jesus asks questions that I, I've noticed over the years. Um, all of his questions have three common elements, even though they're all vastly different kinds of questions, but they, they, they almost always have these three common elements, that his questions are surprising, you don't see them coming, um, they're specific, there's something very particular he's asking about, and they're personal, meaning it, they're not rhetorical or theological questions. They have something to do with the person themselves. So surprise means that uh, not, not that it's a ridiculous question, like, oh, oh my gosh, I can't believe you asked that. Surprise means that there's something about the question that's really attention-grabbing, makes you stop in your tracks and think for a moment. It's not an easy thing to answer. You have to pause for a second and chew on it. 
So that's what surprise means in this context. Specific means that we narrow the question from a broad focus to a very narrow focus. So instead of asking a uh, kind of a, a, a question that could be answered lots of different ways on a broad basis, which in turn makes it difficult to answer in the first place, instead of that, we give the question a very narrow focus. So when Jesus said, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to take up your mat and walk, he was being very specific about the question he was asking, which adds leverage to the question when you ask it that way. So the last thing, personal, simply means that the question proves that you're paying attention to the other person, that the question is, is, is not a question you could ask lots of people, it's a question you're asking that person in that moment because of what you're discovering about them. So here's just some examples that I included in the Jesus-Centered Life of how this works when you're asking questions that are flavored by surprise and flavored by a specific focus and flavored by how personal or tailored to that person they are. Um, these are not steps you take, it's just a rhythm that you get used to as you inter interact with people and engage with them. So here's some examples. You could say, um, and these are, these are examples that I've overheard, and then in my head I thought, how would I translate that into more of a fearless, fearlessly engaging sort of question? So you could go from, don't you just hate people who judge other people? Now, that's kind of a question, but it's more of a statement. So instead, you could ask, well, when have you experienced judgment as both a good thing and a bad thing in your life? Now, think about that. It's surprising because we don't often think of judgment being both good and bad. Um, it's specific, so I'm asking, uh, when have you experienced judgment as good, and when have you experienced it as bad? And it's personal because it's about that person's story. Do you see how those three things kind of fit together? So another question you hear all the time is, how was your day? That's our default setting around the dinner table. But um, if you play around with that question to ask it in a way that causes people to stop and chew and go past the surface a little bit, you might ask instead, well, what's something that happened today that made you want to pray? What's something that happened today that made you want to pray? Now that takes a moment to consider, and then your answer might reveal something that's more authentic and real about what's going on in your life that day. Or here's another one I, I've, I've heard often, what was your childhood like? That sounds innocuous, but think about how broad that is. This is why that question is so hard to answer. It's so broad you don't know where to start. So if instead you said, if you had to choose one experience in your childhood that impacted who you've become more than any other experience, what would that be? Then that narrows it down to, to something that could really reveal something about that person's story, maybe even something that person has never shared with their, with their best friends or their spouse. Or here's the last one. Um, here's an, another innocuous one. How many pets do you have? Which is a, uh, it's, it's not a good conversational question because it requires just a short answer, and the answer is factual. So we're not looking for uh, factual answers in these conversations so much. We're looking for heart answers. That's what we're mining for. So instead of asking, how many pets do you have? You could ask, well, what's one way your pets have changed your life for the better and one way they've made it harder? Do you hear the specificity and even the surprise behind that? I am a pet owner myself. I have a beloved Bajan Frise and a beloved 
a tabby cat named Tilly. So we have Chloe and Tilly, our two girls, and they're both maddening in their own way. And um, the truth is, these two beloved pets have added so much to our life in so many ways, but they're also a pain in the butt sometimes. And to be able to talk about both aspects of that is an interesting way to get at someone's story. And and you learn about their relationship to their pets, and you're also learning something about their, their heart as you ask questions like this. So not all questions have to do with Jesus. I, I hope that's um, obvious from how I'm, the examples I'm giving here. The idea is simply to ask questions that get past the surface. And once you get past the surface, you're playing in Jesus' playground then. <laughs> you're playing in the playground of the heart. And that's where we want to get to is the heart. Um, whether or not your questions are specifically about Jesus or the Bible or God or what, it doesn't matter so much as getting into the territory of the heart where real things can be shared, and maybe the good gift that you give once you're there can connect back to, to, to Jesus in that moment because you're already playing on his playground. So the goal here is to dig past the surface soil and get to that rich soil that's underneath that. So good questions surface courage in the other person. Courage maybe they didn't even know they had. They're, they never expected to be sharing what they're sharing, but they share it anyway because they feel compelled to in response to your question. So what happens is that people, and this is going to sound funny, but they, they show what they're hiding. The, the things that are in the darkness get dragged up into the light, and that's where things start to happen in someone's life. When it goes from being in the darkness to the light, stuff starts to happen. Now, what are some examples of Jesus doing this? Well, just a few quick ones, but it, it happened all the time. But if you think about Nathaniel, uh, when he was first called as a disciple, uh, we've talked about his story before on the podcast, where um, Nathaniel, um, Nathaniel hears from, I think Philip is the one who approached Nathaniel. I could be wrong there off the top of my head, but... Um, He's approached, Nathaniel's approached and told that, hey, I think we might have found the Messiah. And Nathaniel goes, well, where, where's he from? He, oh, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel just blurts out, did anything good ever come out of Nazareth? And uh, his friend says, well, you got to come and listen to him. you got to come and see him. So Nathaniel goes to Jesus, and uh, as he's uh, approaching Jesus, um, Jesus uh, just calls out something about but something that's true about Nathaniel's heart. As soon as he meets him, he says, um, look at this guy coming up here. This, this guy is a, a, an Israelite without any guile. And what Jesus is saying is this guy's not playing games. Uh, what you see is what you get. He's, he's uh, from the get-go with Nathaniel, um, describing something that's true about his heart, and it unlocks Nathaniel. Um, nobody has paid attention to him in quite that way. It's fascinating uh, that this is the first thing Jesus does with him. He speaks out something, that a, a taste of Nathaniel's heart that is true, and he does it in a way that, he's, that it communicates delight and respect for that. So you can think about how Jesus related with Peter um, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after his resurrection, when he's, uh, after they've had a breakfast of fish and this is when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, uh, each time getting more agitated. And each time Peter answers, Jesus says, then feed my sheep. So here, um, 
What is Jesus doing? He's asking a succession of questions, trying to dig below the surface of Peter and root out this thorn that's embedded in Peter's soul now, and that's the thorn of betrayal and the shame that results from it. So Jesus repeatedly asks him this question to try to press on that thorn and kind of push it to the surface where he can get his hands, his fingers gripped on that thorn and then yank it out in the end. So what Jesus is doing here is pursuing Peter with um, questions that get at past the surface to something deeper, to get it surfaced again. Or you could even think about um, when uh, Jesus is encountering Judas at the, at, the last, at the Last Supper, when he asks, when, when he pronounces to his disciples that someone at that table is going to betray him. And um, at the end of this uh, engagement, Jesus looks at Judas and basically tells him, go do what you have to do. So in that way, this sounds like a funny example, but what Jesus is doing is also surfacing what's in the darkness around that table and, and dragging it up into the light and then telling Judas, now go, just go, stop hiding. Go do what you're intending to do. Don't hang around this table any longer just hiding. Um, and so Jesus forces that to the surface, and he sets in motion the circumstances that lead to his crucifixion. Finally, the, the woman caught in adultery. Um, when she is caught, and the, the uh, Pharisees and religious leaders who've, who've planned out this entrapment in advance, they really don't care about her at all. As far as they're concerned, she's going to be executed. They just want to see what Jesus does and to try to uh, entrap him. And in the end, he outfoxes them. But then they all leave. Of course, they drop their own all their stones when Jesus says, you who are without sin, cast the first stone, and they all drop their stones. And he's left there alone with the woman. And Jesus asks her a, a curious question. Woman, um, is there no one left here to condemn you? And Jesus has eyes. He knows they've all left. So why is he asking that question? She, he's asking the question so that she can own what's just happened. No, Lord. They're all gone. He wants her to make a statement um, at this um, high tension. You've got to remember, she's facing a death sentence, and it's sure. There's, there's no escape for her. She was caught. She's going to be executed. And all of a sudden, the tables are turned in a way she could never envision. And he wants her to speak out from her own soul her, her freed reality now. And then, of course, he says uh, in the end, then I don't condemn you either. Go and, and don't sin anymore. So again, he's, he's trying to surface what's inside her to the outside. Always. He is doing this repeatedly. So in a way, what Jesus is doing is what he is calling us to do as we draw close to his heart, that we would treat people with the awe and wonder that speaks to how they have been fearfully and wonderfully made. That is their reality. So when we pursue people in a ridiculous way, in the way that I'm describing, we are acknowledging that a genius artist has planted beauty in them, and that beauty is just waiting to be unlocked, and will we lean in to unlock it? So when we lean into their motivations and fears and hopes and their realities, our intention is to engage them in that way for the purpose of giving to them. So I was having a uh, conversation with a close friend of mine. We hadn't seen this couple in a long time, and we um, 
went over to their house on Saturday night to enjoy an evening together. It was so great to spend time with them, slowed down time where you can fully relax because you know each other so well. Um, and my, my friend went through a se- season of trauma in his life where he lost his job and he lost his church and he became disillusioned with Jesus in, in so many ways. And he couldn't even show up, uh, go walk through the, the uh, church door for a long time because of the, uh, the trauma he had experienced was at a church. And he, he was disillusioned and uh, disoriented, and he had to figure out how he was going to make a living. And my friend started his own business in the midst of this. And now he's, uh, I don't know, four or five years into this business, and he's built it into a thriving business. And I'm sitting there listening to him talk about what he's done and looking back on that season of life that was so dark, and my heart just bubbled over for him. And I just said, you know, I'm I'm in just in awe that in the midst of your disorientation and your pain and your trauma, you planted a business and you had the perseverance and courage to keep that thing going until it's thriving today. I think that's the most extraordinary thing about you, that maybe people on a daily basis don't recognize what that took, the courage it took to plant something when you were at your your most weakest moment. Um so I just reflected that back to him um, um, the other night, and uh, I I knew that when I was saying this, that my intention in saying this was to mark his soul with something true and good. Uh, this was not banter. This was an attempt to to give to him something good out of paying ridiculous attention to him. This is really, um, if you think about what I did there. It's a, it's a spirit-infused reality check. It's the Spirit of Jesus prompting in me um, his own wonder, his own admiration, his own respect for the courage of someone who, who is still following him even though he experienced trauma um, in, in a uh, congregation that s- says their, their only focus is to worship him, and, and he's still following him. And I think what bubbled up inside of me was the Spirit of Jesus just delighting um, and amazed at my, my friend's courage. That's a reality check. That's speaking out what is real. And that reality, of course, is driven by their perspective of Jesus. So just to close off here, to, you know, to think about what we do here in these situations, because all relationships and conversations are improvisational, so how do we improvise in these conversations to move past the brandle, brambles into the core of the person's narrative and to give good gifts there? So the first thing we do is, I've already mentioned it, we ask great follow-up questions. So my rule of, my rule of thumb in any conversation is to always ask one more follow-up question than I normally would. That means I'm always thinking creatively on how I can a- ask another question based upon what the person has said. And I and I just keep asking until I'm out of creativity. Most of us just give up way too soon in this process. People are always dropping clues that are like tiny little invitations for us to move past the wall of brambles in their life, but we either don't see them or we ignore them. So here's some common—I put these in the book, too, in the Jesus-Centered Life. Here's some common um, little clues that people throw out there that give us a place to go after if we're paying attention. So when somebody says uh, in your conversation, well, that's another story, 
It's a way of indicating that there's something big behind this, but I'm not going to pursue it on my own. But it, it is a kind of invitation. If you stop and say, well, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear about that story. What is that other story? It communicates, I have the time to pursue past the surface. I want to hear your interior stories. Or when somebody says, oh, but we don't need to talk about that. That's another way of saying, I'm afraid that if I talk about that, that'll be too intense and too deep for you to go there. And instead we say, oh, I want to talk about that. I would like to talk about that. That is something most people never hear in their lifetime. Or when people respond, when you, when you ask them, uh, how you doing? And when they say, fine, or I've been better, um, th- those are ways of uh, tiny little invitations, tiny little risks of vulnerability where, where they're saying, um, things are not all well with me, but I'm not going to volunteer it. Uh, but I am throwing it out there in case you want to pursue it. Um, when people do that, pursue it. Find out the story behind, I'm fine or I've been better. Or what, when, what about when people say, well, you know, that's a long story. <laughs> um, you can say, I like long stories. I say this all the time to people. When they say, that's a long story, I say, oh, I love long stories. I'd love to hear your story. Or uh, when somebody says, you don't want to know, blank, whatever it is, you can say, yes, I do. I'm very interested in your story. These are all ways of responding to these tiny little acts of vulnerability that people give us in conversation. And if we respond to them, now, now the reason why they're just little invitations is because people feel afraid and unsafe and vulnerable when they share their real story. They're just too insecure to actually go there. So they're, they put out the little clues wondering if we really are interested past the surface level. So that's why we drop clues to others, and mostly we don't find people ever pursue them because they take from us that, oh, you don't want to talk about that. I think this is where we misread ourselves in conversation. Treat those things as if that's the most vulnerable invitation they could offer at that moment because it seems too big, and then pursue past, pursue through those questions. Also in these conversations, um, I've, I, this may sound funny to you, but I found that I need to remind myself not just to ask questions of the other person, but to share my own story. And not my own story of, of victory over defeat, but just my own midstream story that can relate to their midstream story to show my own weakness and vulnerability. So it's easy, it's, it's kind of a safety to ask, only uh, set your mind to asking others questions and never offer up your own vulnerable story in the midst of that. So I literally have to remind myself to get past the false humility I feel sometimes and share my own story, um, not wait for others to pursue it. And by the way, when, when uh, people give you a sort of a, a, a cagey, dodgy answer to this pursuit or a sort of a poorly reasoned response— um, I love the way that uh, C.S. Lewis was, was trained as a young man by his tutor, William Kirkpatrick, who was nicknamed the Great Knock. I just love this uh, story in Lewis's autobiography when uh, he was heading off to uh, live at William Kirkpatrick's home um, to live with his tutor and be, uh, and, and be his, his, the focal point of his education. Um, Lewis had to travel to Surrey, um, a region of England, on the train, and when he got off the train, he didn't know—there was Kirkpatrick to meet him, and uh, the great knock 
um, asked him um, about his trip, and Lewis didn't know what to say, so he said, um, I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey, that it was much wilder than he had expected. And the great knock responded, stop! Um, and Lewis says that it, it was so sudden and so shocking that it, it made him jump. <laughs> and and the, uh, William Kirkpatrick said, what do you mean by wildness? And what ground had you for not expecting it? So Lewis was on notice then that fuzzy answers and, um, you know, not well thought through answers weren't going to cut it with the great knock. Now, that's an extreme example, but it's a, it is an example of paying ridiculous attention to the other person to not allow fuzzy allusions to things to get by, but to try to bring them back to specificity. Well, what do you really think about that? Not the fuzzy thing you just gave to me, but what do you really think about that? And when we hear uh, them take a risk to be vulnerable with us, we celebrate it. When somebody offers you their, their fearlessness, you respond, we respond, with our own fearless gratitude and a generosity of spirit. We speak out what we see or hear. That's our fearless response to someone risking fearlessness. So here's, by, by the way, to close off here, uh, after, my, uh, after I opened this gift from my friend today and was so moved by what he wrote and by the gift itself, here's what I wrote to him in response, and I think it's uh, an encouragement to you as well to step into um, fearlessly engaging people during this holiday time. Here's what I wrote him. In The Princess Bride, the, you know, the great cult movie that... that um, everyone, including me, so loves. In The Princess Bride, Vizzini's repetitive reaction to the twists and turns in his adventure is always inconceivable. That character, Vizzini, says inconceivable throughout the film. And I just love this moment when the hero, Wesley, uh, challenges Vizzini and says, I don't think you really understand what that word means. And the fact that you're using it so often, you're, you're getting it wrong every time. The things you're describing are not inconceivable. Um, you're overusing it. And here's what I wrote to my friend. But it would be hard to overuse inconceivable with you. I just opened your beautiful note, an extraordinary box, and discovered a priceless treasure in both. Thank you so much. These are gifts I will always cherish, along with the, the previous gift you gave me last year that now occupies a special place in our, the entryway of our home. But more than that, it's a gift to be paid attention to in a slowed down way, and you have done that repeatedly with me. That is the greatest gift of all. And gang, it is the greatest gift of all. The gift you can offer Jesus at this time of year is to pay ridiculous attention to the people around you because he wants an opportunity to transform their lives. And the way he'll do that is by you leaning in and pushing past that wall of brambles. All right, gang, thanks for listening. This is the last new episode of the year. We'll start back up again next year. We'll uh, fire the engines back up starting next year. So I hope you have a wonderful, enriching, deep, and peaceful holiday season. Gang, this is season four of episode 50 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can go to our website of the same name, just put a .com on the end, and you'll find links to the resources I mentioned earlier today if you have a last-minute hankering for something. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and we'll talk again next time.